Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday the 3rd of July 2019 and it's been a long time coming. It's been over 7 years since the first episode aired in April 2012. I'd like to thank everybody for listening and supporting the show over the years. I literally couldn't have kept it going without you all. This week, we are excited to welcome back Professor Andrew Kleiman to the show, as Lexi and myself spill our thoughts on the TSSI series that concluded a few months past, and we picked the good professor's brain on a number of issues. Part 2 of our discussion is available as a bonus Patreon-only podcast over on Patreon. If you'd like to join the Patreon gang gang, you can sign up for $5 a month, which works out at $1 an episode and gives you access to the Patreon-only episodes and the right to vote on the Reading Group series, amongst other things. This week I have the new patron, Henrik Carlsen, to thank. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel, and make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. So, to the interview. Well, Andrew... Lexi and myself were the two probably most major stalwarts on the TSSI series we did. I think that we both came away with a lot of respect for the TSSI and consider ourselves proponents. Lexi, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I I think that there's probably still some things about this whole system that I don't understand. But basically, since I read uh, Reclaiming Marx's Capital in 2013... I've basically haven't been able to see like the counter argument to why this isn't Marx's theory. I just I haven't seen anyone really produce like a good counter argument to that. So yeah, and so far as this is Marx's, like I I think that that's the book makes that case. TSSI is how you interpret Marx. Yeah, Andrew. Like, what do you make of that? Like, what's the reception being of like just random weirdos like me and Lexi on the internet? the TSSI <laughs> do you get any sense for like new people coming to trying to understand Marx economics and do you think that they are coming to it from a TSSI point of view well it, you know it's mixed I mean first of all I'm I'm on social media a lot less than I used to be hardly at all and what I get is you know I get communications from people they send me email messages or whatever People who have some kind of philosophic bent or scientific bent tend to be more open and appreciative of what we've done, you know, more inclined to accept the interpretation. There there are a lot of younger people who are kind of like careerists and and whatever, as well as younger people who are, are not and are just more concerned with what they think. And once you have either of those things, careerism or, you know, this is all about meism. then the whole idea of, you know, correct interpretation and adequate interpretation of what Marx himself was putting forward in Capital, that goes, that just goes out the window. And the moment it goes out the window, then the TSSI goes out the window because it is very definitely an interpretation of the text that stands or falls with whether it gets the text right. So the, the moment one doesn't care about that, and that informs so much of the discourse, that informs the reason 
that Marx was alleged to be internally inconsistent in the first place. It informs all of the negative reaction of the so-called experts to the TSSI, all the new young careerists and all the people who are just like, what is it that I think and how can I use this book to claim myself to be the inheritor of Marx or whatever people want to do? As long as that's one's focus, rather than let's try to get the text right, then the TSSI is just never respected and it's not even evaluated properly. It's not even evaluated as an interpretation. It's evaluated as an approach, you know, something you use to do your own thing. And it's not that. So it doesn't fly among those kinds of people. You said earlier that people have a scientific and a philosophical bent take to it. When you say philosophical bent, what do you mean? I was quite surprised by that comment. I, I mean, people who have some serious background in philosophy, some training understand rigorous arguments, have respect for rigorous arguments. I mean, that, that's what people of a scientific or philosophic background have a respect for rigorous argumentation, demonstrating one's points and, and so forth that, that others tend not to have. I mean, it depends, of course, on one's philosophic tradition. But, but yeah, that's what I was referring to. I, I wouldn't say, you know, this is a universally applicable observation of mine. It's an observation, and, you know, I, I, it's not, uh, I don't think it applies to everybody of a philosophic bent or even perhaps everybody of a scientific bent. Yeah. No, I, I do know what you mean because I have a philosophy background. Yeah. And so that's how I was approaching yeah, yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So, I mean, even before I had a handle on the linear algebra, which when I first read the book and versus when I developed like a sort of handle on linear algebra was, oh, you know, about seven years, right? So <laughs> I was interested in this way before I could actually like, at, like check anything approaching the research, like beyond, you know, logical argumentation and doing textual interpretation and, you know, seeing if conclusions follow from premises, right? So I, I, I get what you're saying, Andrew. Right. And, and, and you don't need linear algebra to understand or do anything in the TSSI. It's all arithmetic. It's all easy spreadsheet arithmetic. That's true. And, you know, it's more algebra in, in places for some of the proofs as opposed to linear algebra. Yeah. So, Andrew, I think we see definitely, I, I feel anyway, there's a definite uptick in interest in socialism. Has you seen any corresponding uptick in interest in value theory? Well, there was there was an upsurge uh, associated with radicalization in the aftermath of the Great Recession, but for various reasons, it's not what it was. I mean, there's still an interest, but it's interest coming from people who have sorted themselves out to be careerists, and so they're going whichever way they're going, a lot of people going into so-called value form analysis or whatever it might be. I mean, it's very disappointing. There is really no interest from among that whole cohort, that whole generation of people in the questions of interpretation, you know, getting the text right, letting Marx speak for himself, doing something to overturn the myth of inconsistency, any concern with, with, with that issue at all is, is just not, not there. So it's been, it's been very disappointing, as has the nature of the socialism, I should say, that people say they're 
standing behind. So that's interesting. The interest and value theory coincided with the economic events and not this, like, you know, social democrat wave. Uh, it preceded it, okay? And, and also the kind of interest in, in socialism preceded that. What happened is, for whatever reasons, the Keynesians and the social democrats and the, the value form people and whoever, they won out. My, my, my sense of it is, with all of these things always, and this is just a, another observation going back decades, is that the people who stick to these kinds of things uh, are people with some kind of career interest in it. Okay, The other people, when they face pushback or obstacles, they, they go off and they do other things. They watch Netflix or whatever. You know, They, they, go, they go their own way. And the people who stick to it are, are the careerists, and, and they don't have the best motives in, in, in mind frankly. You know, what I, what I would have wanted to see is, you know, younger people organize conferences and symposia and, 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 you know, special issues of journals, you know, devoted to this question and bring everybody together and, you know, force through evaluation of the allegations of internal inconsistency in Marx's value theory, you know, and his law of the potential fall and the rate of profit. That just has never happened. And, you know, that's like the one thing I've encouraged people to do, and it just does not happen. And, you know, I suspect it's hard to know because I'm not made privy to, you know, personal conversations and, and stuff. But I, I, I'm, I suspect that people try this and they get a lot of pushback and then they either, you know, go the other way, just say the hell with this, or say, God, you know, my friends are more important than getting right what Mark said. Yeah, I know from my own personal experience, somebody who I interviewed for the show, I was talking to them about Marxism and they were an economist and they had read like the stuff. And I was talking to him about the falling rate of profit and the empirical research. And he, he pretty much, I, I won't say word for word, but pretty much said, you know, but like, you'll never get a job in policy if you believe that stuff. You know, you can't you can't talk that way and impact policy. Right. That is that that that's that's a mark of the complete corruption of, of academia. Okay, it's completely and totally corrupt. I, I, I would exempt parts of some disciplines, but the fact that somebody would not only believe that and act on it, but just say that freely and kind of use that as an argument without any shame whatsoever, that is a really good example of the sorry state we're in, and it's a very good example of why the TSSI has basically gone nowhere. And what that means is Marx's value theory, Marxian value theory cannot go anywhere because you have no legitimate scholarly standards by which anything is being evaluated. So it all just becomes this one's opinion and that one's opinion and what you happen to like and what you happen not to like. But yeah, that's a very good example. And and I look, I know I, I know of cases like this and even even more extreme, you know, what people have said. I, I I hear it secondhand, but yeah. I would go so far as to say that it's the vast majority of people that work in any type of economic function. I think a huge amount of them are very self aware of their choice. And, and how they argue about stuff like the TSSI. 
that's my cynical self coming into it. What do you mean by self-aware about how, about, about... Like, you know, that that guy who said it to me, or a person said it to me, he was like, he was extremely self-aware in why he wouldn't touch certain stuff. Right. So, so they're, they're, they're aware that their, their judgments and choices are not being made on the basis of scholarly criteria. Yeah, I think so. Like, I think, I think if you were to look at the vast majority of, like, post-Keynesianism, Behind them all, they'd all be Marxists if they could. I, I feel like that. I feel like a lot of them would would be Marxists if 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 they if they could get a job in it. Yeah, I mean, I've heard I've heard this, and and you know, I know the background of some of the older people, and yeah, uh, not you know, not 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 everybody, not 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 Vicky Chick. I mean, Vicky Chick is a real post Keynesian, but uh, yeah, there there are the other kind. Why does one have to misinterpret Marx in order to keep a career? Can't you just say, you know, Marx thought this, but I think Marx is wrong. Like, that's all you need to do to keep a career. There's some of this that isn't accounted for by a clairvoyant sort of cynical careerism. Some of this must be happening on, I don't want to say an unconscious level, but there's a need for belief in a different direction. Right? Like, because I think that not all these people are holding their heads. I know the TSSI is really Marx, but, you know, I I need to misrepresent Marx. I think a lot of these people believe what they say. And a lot of these people don't use Marx as their, as their head that they're going to, like, try to get a career out of. So, like, there's, there's a number of, like, competing, I guess you might want to say, ideological pressures that cause people to distort this in a way that, you know, just to give a more sympathetic read of the people who turn away from this and go watch Netflix. So me, after watching every Star Trek episode on Netflix, right, I come back to this. Um, <laughs> and, well, there's a sense of intellectual intimidation, right? One approach is a vast literature of, to a degree, it's a resounding chorus of, oh, I'm a Marxist, but yeah, Marx couldn't do math. I think it's it's... It's hard to overstate how overwhelming it is for some a young person that approaches this material to feel like they know something. And all the processes of skepticism that go along with growing up in a society like this kind of contribute to that. For the professionals, I don't have as much sympathy, obviously. But I think, I don't know, it's their job to clear away the miasma and sort of like well, that's that's very that's oof, that, that's very idealistic. You know, they could clear away the miasma if they wanted to. Like sometimes you can read between the lines. Like in one of the cockshot videos recently, he more or less says that what Marx does in volume three, he believes leads to Schraffa, which therefore you have to look at him and say, "Oh, you disagree with Marx," but then he won't really cop to that last part. You know. <laughs> anyway, there's sort of a lot there. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's very likely that you're encountering people and types that I have never encountered. You know, it's different generations and, you know, I've been an academic and, and dealing with academics mostly. So I have never encountered somebody who really, while focusing on the issue of, is this a correct interpretation of the text or is that interpretation a correct interpretation of the text? If that is what they're focused on, I have never encountered anyone who, with the exception of Fred Mosley, 
I should say that. With the, I was just thinking of Fred yeah, Mosley. With the exception of Fred Mosley, I've never encountered anybody who actually believes that the TSSI is, is not a correct interpretation. You know, it's hard to, to, to judge what somebody believes, but it's not impossible. And I, I'm just not aware of that. I'm aware of a lot of people who don't like the TSSI, who think that, you know, there are better ways to go. But let me say another thing in response to what you said, Lexi. The issue is not always that one wants to adopt some other interpretation for some immediate careerist interests. In many cases, and I've, I've seen this since my book came out in particular, among non-economists in particular, those who had no horse in the race, so to speak, what is threatening about the TSSI? And I should say this applies even to people who were TSSI people themselves. What is threatening to people is the issue of interpretation. What is threatening is the whole idea that there was this guy, Marx, he had things to say, he said them, and one can get them right or not right instead of just turning the question around as they have done and saying, you know, did Marx get it right, whatever it is supposed to be. And none of, you know, the social sciences and the humanities operate in that manner whereby one's judgments about what other people said can be evaluated in a scholarly manner with regard to their truth value. Is this true, this claim about what so-and-so wrote? Is it false what this claim is about what so-and-so wrote? They don't operate in this way. And it's very threatening to all of Marx-aligned academia. I mean, people who call themselves Marxists and write about Marx and whatever. It's very threatening to them to have the issue become, are you getting Marx right? In, instead of, you know, here's what I want to say and, you know, is my approach appealing? So I don't know how how that resonates with you because I don't really know the people that you're dealing with. But that's, I would say, common as well as just the plain careerist. I want to go with, you know, cockshot people. Or I want to go with value form people or, or whatever. Resonates fairly well. You know, part of me always thought that the sort of like textual fun house interpretation kind of stuff that you get from Jacques Derrida and the, you know, post-structuralist types was following a set of research norms that was kind of de facto set in motion by the Soviet bureaucracy and the sort of needs of the Marxist, you know, sort of political traditions that ideologized Marx and distorted, distorted what he was saying for political reasons, essentially. And some, you know, neo-Stalinist on Twitter in the 2010s doesn't actually have that <laughs> pressure behind them but they do have this whole, quote, methodology, quote, built up from a political Marxist tradition that goes into academia and sort of transmits its research norms, which are garbage. And <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know if I don't know how much of that accounts for this, because, yeah, I've noticed the same thing. 
you know, approaching Marxism, I sort of de facto, I feel sympathetic to what you might call the analytical Marxist approach, although, of course, the analytical Marxists are some of the worst Shroffians, right? Um, so, I don't know. And Stalinists. I mean, if you look at John Romer's history. Really? C- can you say a little more about that? Well, once upon a time, and still today, there's an organization called the Progressive Labor Party, Maoist, and Romer was in it. You know, at the time, or maybe he had moved away from the party a bit, but, you know, his ideology was, was that Maoist ideology when, when he was doing value theory. He was a red diaper baby. And, and his, actually, what I heard is the whole story is that he was there in the, the People's Park Rebellion in, in, in Berkeley, right? So he was in the, in the PL. And he gets, he gets suspended for two years from UC Berkeley. He was a mathematics student. And then he goes and he's teaching uh, high school mathematics or something. And somebody says to him, look, John, with your mathematical skills, I don't know how you'd, you know, fare in a career as a mathematician, but you would like wipe up the field as an economist because, you know, these people are not really good mathematicians. And with your, your mathematics, you could go and and you could you know do do big things so when he re-enrolled two years later after the suspension he re-enrolled in economics he managed to to get a degree in 15 months or so he solved some problems you know mathematical problems that a professor was having and that, that was good he didn't know what he was doing I'm, I'm telling you a story that i heard right he reads paul samuelson's textbook after he gets done his dissertation to figure out what it was that he learned during this, this 15 months, you know, at a level that, uh, you know, an advanced undergraduate could understand, in other words, because he wasn't understanding what they were telling him when it was all, all done in the math or whatever. And, you know, so he moves into this this kind of Shroffian-oriented stuff and, and, and value what analytical Marxist stuff. That That's the history. Now, you know, obviously he's moved away from that into kind of like Rawlsian social justice and stuff in, in recent decades. But, you know, to think that there was some sort of split between analytical Marxism and whatever kind of Marxism, that that had anything to do with Stalinism versus non-Stalinism or anti-Stalinism, I, I, I don't think so. Oh, I just I just mean more as sort of like the research norms that come out right, of a political right, project. Right. They're not great. Right. I mean, I mean, and also, I mean, analytical Marxism... Or in, let me say, in particular, Romer's stuff and Elster, Elster's stuff, as well as all of Shroffianism, it, it fits very well with various strains of Stalinism, as well as Eurocommunism in particular. Uh, and that's not accidental. You know, in terms of in terms of making Marx's Capital a book about, you don't make Marx's Capital, but you you portray it as a book about distribution. You know, right. fight over the, who gets what goodies. What Marx called the secondary forms of exploitation, or 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 just or just plain distribution of the fruits of the exploitation. Why did it come out of Eurocommunism so much? Why why was it so wrapped up in Eurocommunism? Well, that was the dominant ideology among. The CP types in Europe in what the nineteen seventies, eighties, and and so forth, early early nineties, and so it has to do with principally 
making a an electoral appeal to European voters and with being aligned with the trade union bureaucracies in countries like France and Italy and, and, and so forth, or, you know, the UK. So the, the whole idea that, you know, the struggle is a struggle for redistribution or for distribution, struggle over, you know, the, the distribution of the, the surplus, as it's put, that accords very well with the ideology of the, the trade union bureaucrats whose objective role is to keep the workers in line, to keep them down. So that's always the deal is, you know, capitalist production is not going to be challenged. We, the union, that is the bureaucracy, will suppress all kinds of spontaneous actions, sit-down strikes, you know, spontaneous walkouts. What we're going to do is struggle to get you higher pay, okay? So think of that in terms of what Shroffianism says. You know, within Shroffianism, there's no interrogation. There's no, there's no focus at all on the capitalist relations of production. All of the focus is on who gets what share of stuff. Okay? And, and the key political takeaway from Shroffianism is that the relations of production do not constrain the relations of distribution. So, you know, there's this relative autonomy of the, the, the distributive realm, as Alphazer may have wanted to put it. So, so you could just redistribute everything and give essentially the capitalists the same rate of profit, and in Shraffa, that's all fine and hunky dory. Yeah, I mean, you'd face political obstacles, but you know, I mean, yeah, capitalism could run very well. It would be the same system, and so forth. You get a different rate of profit if the workers get more. Okay, but the the potential maximum rate of profit would be the same, and it's just a question of who, who's getting a bigger share of the stuff. You know, that becomes the, the, the key question. And of course, if you look around, not only at Shroffianism, but most post-Keynesianism and, and so forth, those become the crucial questions for, for those people as well. Okay. So if I were to restate how, like, the way I was thinking about this is that it's sort of the, the alignment with, like, the Leninist political world that creates the post-structuralist sort of Marxist research norms. Once you get to social democracy, which Eurocommunism is a pivot essentially towards becoming social democratic parties, you end up with the regular bourgeois ideological pressures and the sort of bourgeois research norms. I have to say the reason that the TSSI gripped me is because it was engaging with these bourgeois research norms and it was engaging with, you know, intuition pumps and other sort of analytic argumentation. What do you mean by intuition pumps there, Lexi? Okay, uh, well, an intuition pump is a type of thought experiment that's used by analytic philosophers generally, where you design a situation and you try to evoke a response in the reader as a way of getting them to adjudicate in a, basically towards assenting towards a premise. It, it's, it's meant to overcome certain obstacles based on people's intuitions, to try to challenge those intuitions so that they'll be more likely to be open to an argument. So it doesn't attempt to rise to the level of a demonstration. So John Cyril's Chinese room is, a, is an intuition pump. So it, it, goes to the que it goes to the question of what is it, what is it to think, right? The, the Chinese room. 
and that that's used to to assess the the possibility of computers thinking. What Cyril wants us to do is to try to grapple with that whole concept that we take for granted, which is thinking. So he's got like a different take than a lot of people, and he wants them to to to, to try to understand what it is that that they're thinking that thinking is, and what he's thinking that thinking is. Okay, so Lexi is kind of making this general point that out of the material conditions of the politics of, say, Europe, Euro-communism and this kind of stuff, that we started to see a kind of a reinterpretation of Marx to make out, hey, look, Marx was always a Keynesian. Which was a social democratic sort of tradition. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, think, I, think, it's, I think it's that, but... I would say that's a that's an uh, an instance of a broader problem, and the broader problem is the, the one that I that I mentioned that people want to use Marx for their own purposes and to posit themselves as the inheritors of Marx in, in whatever way that might be. It might be that they're Keynesians and they want to say you know Marx was really a Keynesian. Or, or whatever it, it, it might be. I mean, it doesn't always, you know, especially in places like, like Italy and France, it doesn't even work that directly. But there's this whole idea of constructing a version of what Marxism is, you know, which includes Marx and putting him within that tradition of what one is calling Marxism. So, yeah, I, I mean, what, what I want to, so what I want to do is say, yes, that, that definitely is, is, is a part of the picture, what you're saying. But there are other kinds of ways that people will go. The, the, the common element is that there's not a concern to understand, you know, what Marx said in and for itself and to assess whether one is getting the text right, but one is using the text and, and invoking the name Marx for iconic purposes, essentially. From doing the series, we've had, I would think, Lexi, is this fair to say, we've had a lot of pushback from the econophysicists and yeah. Paul Cockshot and that. And only literally, I think, in the in the last week have I had really any kind of value form people contact me with any kind of critiques of the TSSI. This is kind of surprising to me because in the literature, would you, would, would people think that the value form part of, say, value theory discussion or whatever research is way more dominant in the academy. Would that be correct? Uh, Yeah, I think it's way more dominant. It's uh, certainly got a broader appeal beyond economists to various kinds of people in other social sciences and humanities. But those two things go together. Since they're, they're, they're bigger, they're not going to feel and and they have their own discussions and one can make one's career comfortably you know just as a value form person it's just kind of natural that there's going to be less focus on trying to knock down the conclusions that you reached and the kind of uh, investigations you were doing it's probably also a function of i'd say the show itself the podcast itself it's much more of a scientific bent so maybe that's who actually listens to the goddamn thing so probably self-selecting but I, I found that interesting one thing that the person i suppose i don't want to go into all these mad critiques now because so many of the these counter critiques or whatever we get so many of them 
don't lend themselves to the format of a podcast without having visuals and equations and stuff. But we'll try and just talk broadly about some, I think, that we can discuss on on the podcast so that people can understand. But one simple one was uh, a critique from the value former just literally this week was saying that Kleiman just thinks that value is made in production. They were making the case, well, value is has a dual nature that it can only be realized within exchange. Would you like to just talk a little bit about that critique and what exactly you think Marx says it and the TSSI says about this? Right. Well, first of all, the issue is not what Kleiman thinks. The issue is what Marx thought. Okay. They'd go off on the wrong direction from the very get-go, and there's a confusion. There's a confusion in the way it's posed about Kleiman thinking. Are we talking about Marx or are we talking about what one thinks is true of reality? Or what about what about what Kleeman thinks? Kleeman. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna by- bypass the, the, the mispronunciation of my name stuff. Um, Sorry, Andrew. I couldn't I couldn't resist the joke. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk about what Marx wrote. Value is created in production, and it is realized in exchange, or not realized in exchange, depending on the circumstance. Okay. There's no contradiction there. And so to say, oh, well, it can only be realized in exchange, it's not an argument against the, the idea that value is created in production. Now, one does need to be careful about the term realized. We have one term in English. There are multiple terms that can be translated all as realization in English. The term that Marx used, the German term, is one that means realization in the financial commercial sense. When you have an asset and you sell it and you get money for it, that is realization in this commercial sense. So, for instance, let's say you have a house and the value or price, whatever, of the house goes up. So you have a capital gain. Let's say it's a $50,000 capital gain. You bought the house for three hundred thousand. It's now worth three hundred and fifty thousand. Okay. Now, whether or not you sell the house, you have the capital gain. So it's said to accrue. Okay. So there's the accrual of the capital gain. Okay. That's analogous to the creation of the value. There's the increase in the value, but you don't realize the capital gain in this technical sense until you sell the house. Now. That doesn't mean you're not richer. You had a house that was worth three hundred thousand. Now it's worth three fifty. You're fifty thousand dollars richer. Your additional wealth is in the form of a house that's worth more. Okay, so you own more value than before, prior to and irrespective of any realization of that capital gain. So capital gain realization. You know, or any realization just means that you're converting value from a physical form, for instance, house, into the money form. Okay, so let me ask you a kind of a a linked question here, because when it comes to a house, it's quite easy for people to understand. But let's say we have got something like just kind of simple production. And let's say it's 2006 
in Ireland and I've got a cream making factory and I've just made uh, uh, some cranes. I then bring them to market maybe early 2007 and the ass has fallen out of the market all of a sudden. Now, in that instance, like, and say you cannot sell the cranes at all. And so they have essentially zero value. But that I think is a, a trickier one for people understand, to understand because it feels like that the value in production is dependent on, say, what your productive labor now is dependent on a future estimate of what the market will take. Well, actually, it doesn't depend on estimation at all. Did you say crane, like C-R-A-N-E? Yeah, let's, for my, my, yeah, my next door neighbor, right, he worked for a crane place. They were, it was hiring now. They weren't producing, but they were hiring cranes and their sales fell by 99% in one year. Right. Okay. So you're not talking about the birds. You're talking about the excavation equipment. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. Um, well, it's not a question of estimation. If objectively there is no market, there is no market and the cranes are not worth anything or they're worth less than they were before. And, and, and Marx says that explicitly. So something for which there is no demand has zero value. And he says it loses the value that it had. Okay. That again is not any level in contradiction to the idea that value was created in production. It was created in production, the crane, the moment it was produced, it had a certain value, whatever it might be. And it later lost that value. And this is no different from eating an apple. Okay. You know, an apple is picked. It's got a certain value. It's sold. Let's say it's sold at that value or price above or below that value. And you buy it at that price and it's got the, the same price and value. Uh, and then you eat it and it's there in your stomach and it has no value. Okay. So it's like, how can you say the value is created in production? The apple in your stomach doesn't have any value, you know? So doesn't consumption destroy value? I mean, yes, it destroys value and economic conditions cause values of things to change and so forth. But as long as one keeps the temporality in clearly in mind, first there's production, you know, then there's exchange, then there's consumption. It's clear that, that each of these processes is distinct from one another, and they all play different roles. Creation of value, exchange of value, realization of value, consumption, which is also consumption of value. You, you know, I don't, I don't have too much of a problem with people that have like a different set of intuitions about these things. But the value formers do what a lot of Marxists do, even though they're kind of, in a way, post-Marxists, right? Like... Heinrich's uh, introduction to Marx is mostly pretty good, mostly says and flags, hey, this is where I disagree with Marx. But on this point, kind of fudges it, you know, kind of makes it seem like Marx saw value as created in exchange, which textually I don't think is the case. And also privately, I've seen somewhat prominent value formers sort of casually say, yeah, Marx was a substantialist. Yeah, we think Marx had like a you know, only half broke with Ricardo and we're completing the break. They use all this Marxist language to say something. It's, you know, Marx is wrong about this, but we're going to keep claiming to be the Marxists. Right. Heinrich's own way of putting it is that there are ambiguities in, in Marx. 
you know, sometimes went one way, sometimes went the other way. I, I, I don't think that he's got anything actually in terms of textual support for that. And by textual support, I mean any passages that cannot be interpreted differently so as to render uh, Marx's writings on the topic internally consistent with one another. There are some differences among these people. In general, what I think you're saying, Lexi, is kind of like the main value form line, but not universal, going way back, going, going, going back decades. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats. Lexi and myself are currently planning to produce a value theory video series for YouTube. If you know anybody or are interested yourself in helping with the video editing and graphics, please Drop us a line and let us know.